I am Alex Debris. I'm an independent consultant, so I'd say founder at, at Debris Advisory. I do like DynamoDB, AWS consulting. Generally, in terms of coffee, I drink two cups of caffeinated black coffee in the morning, use an AeroPress for that, and then the rest of the day, I'll probably drink like three or four cups of instant decaf, generic, not good coffee at all. And that's my, that's my coffee batter. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another MLOps Community Podcast. I am your host, Dimitri Os, and today I am joined by none other than Abby and Alex. We spoke to today all about databases. Oh my God, this was such a deep dive for me, knowing so little about this, but I knew he would deliver. I mean, the guy wrote a book on DynamoDB, and you could just tell when we were talking to him, he was in, in Spanish, they say, in tu salsa. He was in his salsa, as they could say, when he was talking about DynamoDB and just databases in general. I learned a ton. What were some of your key takeaways, Abby? For me, it was two. The first one was the way he explained the capture, because I felt like that is something which I learned the conventional way, which is, hey, you have to pick between these three choices, which is consistency, availability, and persistence. I was like, oh my God, all three are important. But the way he explained it was whenever you have failure, what do you choose between two properties, availability and consistency, and you decide accordingly. So in fact, I was thinking more so about the whole problem in a machine learning perspective, which is what would be the use cases when we would say consistency matters a little bit more. So for example, let's say we are working with financial data. Maybe consistency of our data across different domains matters a little bit more. As compared to, let's say, if you're working on ads or some sort of event logging application, then the availability would be more important as compared to consistency. For example, let's say if you're working with weather forecast, availability uh-huh. would be more important. And the second was basically the part where he was sort of talking about WellTP versus OLAP. Oh, so so that, was, that was very interesting. I loved his quote where he basically said, look, when I'm evaluating databases, I'm not looking for features. I'm not going down a checklist and saying, what kind of features does this database have? I actually prefer my database to be very opinionated and do what it says it's gonna do on the tin. And it makes complete sense why he dove into DynamoDB so much and he really, stressed how DynamoDB is very opinionated, but it gives you what it gives you and it says it's going to give you, no matter if you're dealing with small or large scale. And I loved how he explained that in a way that even someone like myself was able to understand and pick up on without really knowing too much about the database world. So I am going to just get right into it. I think we should let Alex, tell us all about his story and what he's done. We also are going to see, hopefully, Alex can give us a few copies of his book to give away to some of the people that are writing us very kind reviews. So if you, or actually, if you want to write mean reviews, we'll still give you some books. We don't care. We're not going to bias the reviews. We want to hear the truth about what you think about this podcast. So if you are listening to this podcast, and you want to help us out, it would mean the world if you gave us a review and you left just a few words on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you tune in to this podcast because 
That way we can help the podcast grow and you might even get a book out of it. And so that's that. Sign up to our newsletter too. Sign up to join us at virtual events or in real life events at over 30 cities around the globe. And without further ado, Abby, I think it's time to get into the conversation. Let's go. So, Alex, you went from studying law, becoming an attorney, to becoming a DA engineer. What on earth? That is just like a, a, a weird path, right? So, yeah, my wife and I, we both went to law school. We were doing law school together, and uh, law school was three years. And during the summers of law school, you actually go work at law firms or some sort of job. So I went and worked at a law firm my first summer and I met a guy there who was like super into tech, got me into tech. I'm always like checking tech news and things like that, but still not doing a lot. And then my last year of law school, third year, he and my brother-in-law started working on this this startup. It was like a data science ag type thing. And I wanted to be involved and they're like, well, you can you can write the business plan, which is like not a useful part of it. But I like did that. And, and, then, they're like, and then I got done with that and I'm like, well, I still want to be involved. Like, what can I do? And they're like, well, you can learn to learn to code or something like that. So they like bought me a book on Django, which is like the Python web framework, two scoops nice. of Django. They bought me that and sent it to me. And I just like that whole third year of law school, I, I just spent trying to learn how to code and like build this website for this, this data science ag thing that we were doing. And that's how I learned it. And so then I went, I graduated, took the bar, worked as a lawyer for nine months, but I'm still like programming all the time at home. I like that way more, even at work. Like sometimes it would be slow at work and we had like these old bad windows machines and I couldn't sure. program on it, but I was using, it was called, it was cloud nine, which is, this is before that ended up getting bought by AWS, but it was like this in browser IDE that you could use to program. You could like clone your Git repo into it and do it. So like yes. at work on this janky windows machine, I'm using cloud nine in like internet explorer nine or whatever trying to, to program and keep learning whenever I have some downtime. And then after nine months or so, I was like, oh, I just, I just got to make the jump. So then, <laughs> I, then I left, I left the law and, and went to a sports video company that I was doing data engineering for them that was based in Nebraska, which is where I'm from. The ag tech company didn't work out? It didn't work out. Like none of us had the the time or money to like really commit to it. Cause my, my, my buddy, he was still working at the law firm. My brother-in-law, he's like, well, I would do it, but like, we got to get some money if we're going to do that. And none of us were willing to make the commitment. So he, he went and got a, a, a real job too. So none of us was, was able to commit, but it was a really good learning experience for me. Interesting. But why specifically data engineering? I know that there's always a need for people to come in and manage that data. And that's almost one of the core functions in a data team. But again, there are, for anybody who's trying to learn, I don't know, programming from the get-go was like full stack development. Why data engineering? Yeah, well, I couldn't do full stack development because I've just like, my design eye is just terrible. I can't like <laughs> format any, like I, I just, I still can't do HTML very well. I need to like use a template that someone's generated or, or things like that. So I, that was never an option for me, I, I felt like. Like the the stuff we were doing for the data science thing, it was I was doing most of the back end stuff and just like enough front end to get by, but it was most like displaying charts and data and different things like that, and and then manipulating data in databases. And it was a lot of Python. It was a lot of AWS. When I went and interviewed at this company Huddle, this is a sports video company. I 
I wasn't interviewing as a data engineer specifically. I was interviewing as an infrastructure engineer. So basically like a platform team to just help everyone use AWS better and, and manage that sort of stuff. And then pretty quickly after I got there, they were spinning up a data engineering team. And I just got involved with that. And and so I, I was one of the, they, they had like a bunch of different tools they were using. None of it was was working super well. None of it, no one was full-time committed to it. And they're like, hey, let's just get three or four people and and get them dedicated on it. So we did that. I knew a lot of AWS and a lot of Python, which is kind of the the lingua franca of, of data engineering at that point. So a lot of redshift, a lot of pulling data out of production databases, a lot of parsing logs and putting it in different places and, and that sort of thing. And I... I learned a ton there. It was, it was a lot of fun. I, I, I enjoyed it. And But this was, was, how long ago was this? So that was, let me see, twenty. I think 2014 is when I graduated law school. So 2015, I started at Huddle. And then I worked there for two years doing data engineering. And then at the very end of that, I started using like AWS Lambda and serverless stuff and getting into that. And nice. I was using this this tool called the serverless framework to deploy my my Lambda functions. And I saw that that company was hiring and I was like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to see if I can work for them. So I worked for them remotely for two and a half years. And that's when I really went down like the serverless rabbit hole I got into. Right. That's how I got into DynamoDB because a lot of people using Dynamo with with Lambda in their serverless applications. And, and that's found a, a whole new chapter. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect segue into yeah. one of the things that we definitely wanted to talk about was serverless and also yeah. DynamoDB. I mean, I know you wrote a whole book on DynamoDB and we're going to get yeah. into that and yeah. go deep there, but let's just talk about serverless and some of the patterns you've been seeing and also what interested you, like when you saw serverless, why did that stick out? And then why did you want to go deeper there? And then what have you been learning since you went down the rabbit hole? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's hard to know what serverless means because it's it's really been expanded in in a lot of ways by by different people, including like uh, the marketers. I'd say just call everything serverless now. So, but like for me, it was it was AWS Lambda, which is like this managed event driven function based compute, where rather than like having to go spin up a server, initialize the code on that server, and then have it start either processing from a queue or take HTTP requests or whatever. What I do is I just package up a zip file of my code and say, here's the entry point to my code. And then say, whenever X event happens, I want you to like trigger my my code, my function handler that I've told you with that event and I'll sort of process it. And I can react to that event. And that could be, again, messages in an SQS queue. It can be messages in a, a stream, like a Kafka stream or a Kinesis stream. It could be HTTP requests, just anything event driven. And like for us at, when I was doing data engineering, that was super helpful. Like one of the big problems we had was we had this log provider. We're sending them all this log, these logs. And then every like five minutes, they would send us like a dump file of just like, here are the logs you sent us in the, fa- in the past five minutes. And they put it into S3 and it was, and like, we wanted to be processing those as they came in, but we had no way to be able to do that easily. But then Lambda came out and the, one of the first events they had was S3 notifications. So you could just set this up on your bucket and say, every time someone puts a file into my S3 bucket, trigger this Lambda function, I can handle it. And now we could just say, we, we got rid of all this infrastructure. We could just say, okay, now that that happens, like pull down that file, parse it, shove it somewhere else and react to that super easily rather than doing like more of a sort of batch-based reconciliation project. So like that made it way easier for me. And then I'm seeing all these other places it's useful and started getting into that. And I was like, I really think this is going to be a, a big thing. It fit with my model of how applications were built. I, I hadn't been around for a long time. So I was building stuff on Heroku. That was like what we built our, our first thing on. And then like thinking of stateless compute 
and then in stateful databases somewhere. Like I didn't have some of the baggage of, of prior infrastructure. So, so Lambda really fit well with my mental model that way. And again, placing this, this is like before Airflow was a thing and it was something that just came out and you... Yeah, I think Airflow was pretty new. I, I, so when I was doing data engineering, Luigi, I don't know if Luigi, it was like oh, a yeah. Spotify project, Eric uh, Byrne, I, I don't know how to say his last name, but like yeah. he created this at Spotify and that I, we used a ton of Luigi for like our data pipelines, moving and processing data and moving stuff around. Airflow came out after that and, and other things as well. But yeah, it was, it, it was a while back. Yeah. So one of the questions, because you started talking about event driven architectures, Mm -hmm. is what are the big challenges according to you in developing machine learning applications in and terminology and the frameworks and stuff or how do we adopt it yeah sure so i i mentioned the term event driven and and it's hard because i use it in, in the sense of event driven compute for lambda where it's like they're only going to spin up my compute when an event happens which could be asynchronous events like messages streams it could also be HTTP requests, right? But sort of like my compute only exists when I have an event that needs to do it. There's also this notion of event-driven architecture with that, which I think is like very common with serverless applications. So you see a sort of conversion bit, but event-driven is like more asynchronous, right? You're, you're passing messages, especially like pub-sub type things. That's where you see a lot of Kafka type things coming out. And, and we're seeing we're seeing a lot of that, especially in the cloud and, and with just more data and more users that you can have, uh, seeing a lot of that sort of stuff. So it's fun to see. It's fun to see the patterns coming out around that. I, th I still think it, some of the patterns feel immature just around the like, okay, I want to have these sort of decoupled producers and consumers. That's part of event driven is I can broadcast this message out as a producer and I don't know about my consumers and they can consume it. But it can make it difficult to like, if you need to evolve that schema, how do you do that? How do you notify your consumers of that's happening? How do you just share schemas generally and things like that? And we're getting more and more of those patterns, but it's still, I think it's more difficult for people to learn than it, traditional request response, REST API based stuff where it's like, hey man, I can I can implement the my my structure on this this API endpoint and tell you it's gonna come back and it's gonna break right away if, if, if I try to consume it and, and it doesn't. So still working on patterns there, but yeah, it's, it, it's fun to see it. The, the nice thing about event driven is it can, it can scale better. You can decouple these, these things in different ways, and you can use that same piece of data in a lot of different ways, especially in like these machine learning pipelines, data engineering pipelines to, to create these smarter features, recommendations or, or things like that. And because I, I think we're going in a very interesting direction to talk about batch versus streaming. And that's when one of the things, one of the hot topics, how yeah, do you that's feel so about that big debate on don't do don't don't call it streaming if it works as slow as that yeah i mean i've been a little bit out of the data engineering game so so you all probably know that better than i do i know like when i was back doing data engineering work we did do a lot of more batchy type work especially like when pulling from our production databases that would be more batch oriented type stuff we did have some sort of streaming stuff, especially around like logs and, and things that are more continuously coming in. I would say like streaming is great if you can, if you can make it work, but it, it adds like a, a lot of, a lot of difficulties, especially so around much. mutable data, right? Like, like uh. you have these data warehouses or, or data lakes on S3 and it's just like, if you have a mutable events coming in, that's one thing. If you have mutable data, like changing those on, on things that are not meant for small updates, but are meant for just like giant batch up like more continuous ingestion it's harder to handle updates and things like that that was a difficulty i know when i was still in that game i'm a little 
I'm a little bit out of that game now, but I don't know. Are you are you all seeing difficulty? Like, what, what do you see from the batch and streaming side? For me, I still prefer batch because, again, dealing with variable data, especially with live production models, is questionable for me. Uh, but the models that you're working with, the data quality matters so much. So unless you really need to use streaming and yep. plus, I mean, it's, it's something I feel like we're sort of coming into and we haven't really arrived there. Maybe we will by so, the end of this year. Mentioned a lot of your work was on bats. So what were the few challenges that you personally seen and what were the few holdups for you? In? Yeah. So when I was doing data engineering, this wasn't for a lot of ML type stuff, but it was more for just like internal analytics have come if, if a PM wants to see how many people are using this feature or Maybe we're going to deprecate a feature, how many people are using it or, or different things like that. And I would say we had two big categories of data, right? We had like our production databases. This would be users, teams, videos, that people had uploaded, different things like that in our application. Those things are, are fairly mutable, right? And then we had events, log type data, where it's just like, hey, someone watched this video, someone did this. And that second type of data, super easy for us. Like we could we could handle with streaming, which was like semi-streaming for us because we would only get those those sort of files from our our log processor every few minutes. But when it came in, we we just like then turned it into a stream that people could use and also put it at rest in S3 or in, in Redshift, things like that. But then our databases, our production databases, that's a lot harder to handle hmm. streaming for, especially like they used a lot of MongoDB at that point. And it's just kind of tricky to how you handle that setting. We had some databases that were like oh, one that was over a terabyte and just like how do you manage the existing state, but you're getting a stream of updates and we had to to work around some of that stuff. But I think mutability in your sort of data engineering, it's tricky. Like Redshift is not built for small updates. Uh, S3 is not built for small updates. They're built for big files or, yeah. or, or big uploads of files. Dude, so I got a kind of a taste of what it means to be a LinkedIn influencer. And it was because I completely ripped off a buddy of mine, David Hershey, when he wrote a blog post for the MLOps community blog. And it was on like the phases of real time and basically like streaming architecture for machine learning. Right. And so it talked about how you start with batch and then you try and go like batch streaming and then you go like real time streaming and how much complexity is added along the way. And so I took his post and I punched it up a little and made it into this little LinkedIn post with the highlights. And then I've never had something go so viral in my life. I felt like I was gonna get invited to the Grammys or something afterwards, or at least the LinkedIn Creator Awards. Did not happen. I'm still waiting for that in case anybody out there is wondering. But the theme of streaming has definitely gotten onto people's minds. I think stream, like real-time streaming, real-time ML, people that I talk to, even if they're not doing it, they think they should be doing it. And one yeah. of the biggest problems or barriers to entry is that it's just a complex beast right now where it's at and who knows there's a lot of very well-funded startups that are trying to make it a lot easier for us but we'll see how that plays out and how easy they can make it because there is like these what you're talking about there's so much complexity involved in whether it's the database or it's the all right are you going to grab some kafka and flink and throw it in there but 
this is like kind of changing gears. I think there is a great piece that we can dive into and something that I would love to hear your thoughts on when it comes to just like data infrastructure and especially when you're looking at like do you have strong thoughts on the modern data infrastructure or how things are set up these days and with respect to like because I know you like to play very much in in database land and so how databases kind of are helping you see the rest of the field per se yeah, that's a that's a good question. Let me think on that. So when I think back to like my my data engineering days, I think a few things we always wanted to have is as much codified as you could have, right? So we had our Luigi pipelines and it would go, we'd have our sort of raw data somewhere and then it would go through a few different stages. So as much of that at the very end of my my time doing that, DBT was becoming a thing, which I, I see a lot of, of people using in, in how you can codify uh -huh. those transformations and doing ELT type patterns, right? Where you're loading it into a database and then transforming it and different things like that. But but again, all all codified. And and the big other thing I learned, I think, from data engineering was around immutability, especially when you're moving these big data sets around, having these different sort of stages and not not changing stuff in place as much, but maybe like you have your raw data somewhere in S3 and then it's cleaned it one step somewhere else and then cleaned one step somewhere else. So then you can if you need to rerun from one particular step, you can blow one away and, and rerun it and and fix the bug that way. So think of your, you know, your transformations are pretty functional and then you have your state, just, just intermediate steps somewhere, things like that. So one thing I would say is like, I got out before Snowflake took off. And, and the interesting thing to me, and we were talking about this a little bit before, but like Snowflake and Dynamo, which I, I was involved with, I think we're like the early stages, different ends, OLTP for Dynamo, OAP for Snowflake, but the early stages of like databases, data infrastructure, that was truly built for the cloud and like what the cloud can do and the elasticity of the cloud and, and, and things like that, rather than saying, Hey, the traditional databases that we've had before, let's just pull them into a, a cloud data center now, right? Let's pull MySQL and Postgres or, or Redshift, Greenplum, whatever those are into a, a data center. Now you have ones that are like, okay, I'm using all these different primitives of the cloud. I can use that elasticity and, and things like that. And, and I think that's really exploded now over the past, like two or three years. Well, and that brings up something that we were talking about before we hit record, where you were saying how we're quite mature into this cloud ecosystem. Depending on which enterprise you yeah. talk to, they yeah. will have their thoughts or opinions on that. Some of them, I was just talking to a friend who shall remain unnamed today. And he was saying like, yeah, at this financial institution he works at. They're still trying to get onto GCP and it's like very, very slow moving. But let's forget about those use cases for a moment. And let's talk about these more mature use cases in the cloud ecosystem and how, especially when it comes to databases, how things have changed. And you were talking about using these cloud primitives. What does that mean for us as we're looking at databases? And as I mentioned before, it's like a new day goes by and we get a new database each day. Yeah. Yeah. So when I talk about, I guess, d databases or data infrastructure that's taking advantage of these primitives, like if you think of the cloud, part of it is just these different managed services that that the cloud providers give you. And that can be the, the underlying instances, EC2 instances, but also higher level services like SQS, a queue service or, or S3, right? Like, which is just 
blob storage, if you ever need to store files or images or documents or data files, whatever they are, right? S3 is just like this infinitely scalable paper use, highly available API for that point. And, and so let's dive into like that part of it for specifically data, data warehousing, right? Like I use, I used to use Redshift back when I was in my data engineering days. And the way Redshift works is they're going to spin up a cluster of giant EC2 instances with giant disks attached to them. And you, you load data into Redshift and it's going to spread it out across instances on, in your cluster onto those disks. And it's going to be querying those live. And that worked. And that's like the, the sort of traditional model, I would say of, of data warehousing, but then Snowflake comes along and it says like, why do we have these giant disks attached when we have S3, which is like this infinitely available cloud storage, blob storage mechanism? Why don't I just use that for my storage? And then I'll have EC2 instances that have some local disks attached that they'll use for like hashing between queries, especially hot stuff, but they don't need to store all the data on them. And what I need to do now is scale up my compute to handle bigger queries or, or different things like that, pull it in. But like, now my compute is elastic, right? Because EC2 is a service I can scale up and down. My storage is, is elastic because I can just put files to S3 as much as I need them. And, and now we've gotten also that separation of compute and storage. And, and I like, they just built for that in this, in this sort of new way, right? And it changed, I think just like the growth of Snowflake compared to the other data warehouses. I think you can see people just like, it, it does cost more. And part of that is like, because people don't know how to model in Snowflake, I'd say, but like <laughs> also it's just like so much faster and easier to use where you don't have to like think about your cluster. You don't have to manage your cluster like you did in Redshift. You can just be like, no, I'm just going to be loading data to you and I'm going to query it back and, and send you the bill at the end of it. And considering there is a lot of action happening in the database world, do you feel like there will ever be a snowflake that happens again, that type of thing that just has a big boom and it gets so much adoption? Yeah, that's super interesting too, because like you do see a ton of different databases coming on all the time. Every week there's a new one, like you were saying, and, but it's, it's a high burden to, to break through now, because now you have to be like, how do you promise the same sort of reliability and free maturity? Like building a database yeah. is different than <laughs> building other stuff. Like you need a certain level of trust and all that stuff. And then also if you have a different query language or however you access it, that's difficult. Now that you have an education problem with that. So it is tricky. In fact, there was, there's almost a sweet spot of like data infrastructure or new data, but like where like Mongo took off, Redis took off, Elasticsearch took off, Snowflake took off. Like those, that sort of era of databases was like new sort of database or, or data store type infrastructure that really took off. But also I feel like some of those weren't quite built for all the elasticity of the cloud. I don't think Elasticsearch, I don't think Redis, I don't think Mongo really were. So I think we'll see some replacements in that area, but it is, it is a high burden in terms of breaking through. I mean, one way you're seeing this is so many databases are trying to be Postgres compatible, MySQL compatible, yeah. different things like that. And basically like I can give you new guarantees, like all these new SQL things, right? I can use some of these primitives of the cloud and, and give you a lot of the SQL stuff that you like with that exact same SQL API, but now all the, the cloud scalability and, and performance there too. Yeah. It's so funny. It is like adding just basically throwing more features at it or throwing more capabilities inside of it. We're doing these four different things inside of our database and how that is now the value prop. I don't yeah. know if that's like, it's not strong enough. That And, and that also makes me nervous. Like I actually, like when you're comparing and choosing a database, I, 
don't do just like a checkbox like do they have this feature do they have that feature do they have this feature like honestly i want a database i want a piece of infrastructure that has an opinion right an, an opinion yeah. on how the world works or what this thing is designed for specifically then also like it, hopefully it can tell you what it's not designed for what you shouldn't use it for right because i think if you try to have the the one size fits all i, I can do it all type of thing like it's going to be probably bad at, at a lot of them or or you're you're going to start using it for one of those things and then you're not going to find out that it's really bad for that thing until you're in production you're two years down the road you have 100 gigs of data in there and now it's much harder to migrate out uh, and, and you're having all kinds of problems yeah, yeah you're caught with your pants down yeah exactly Hey, I'm Vishnu. I'm a data scientist at first hand, and I definitely think that you should subscribe to the MLOps Coffee Sessions podcast. It's the best podcast out there to stay on top of what MLOps actually is, to talk to the true thought leaders in the space. And oh, by the way, Demetrios is absolutely hilarious. What a weird guy. You should definitely subscribe to the podcast. Interesting. And this also makes me think of what will be the future revolution in data connectors as well as we are expanding into this. But also because we're getting so many tools from not just on the database side, but also on the event management side right now. What's next on connectors from two perspectives? One is, what do you think would the next software be able to do? Would that, would that be something which already ties up the software systems that we have, which is more like integration kind of software? Or would it be something that defines new data types, which is what sort of allows us to be able to probably do something better, which is like compress our data even. Yeah. yeah. Or... Another thing I also wanted to ask was basically maintenance and upgrading because of the constant changes and how do we manage all of that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, those are, those are great questions. I would say like on maintaining, I think, like, I think over the next five to 10 years, you're going to just see way more managed database services, fully managed ones where it's like, you actually don't even think about software upgrades under the hood. And, and like, so when I think of just in AWS, right? I, I love Dynamo. I do a lot on Dynamo, but there's, you can also like, there, there's RDS, which is the relational database service. They will ma run and manage Postgres, MySQL, SQL server for you, whatever. And I would say those, those are like different in philosophy, right? With, with, if, if they're managing a Postgres instance for you, they're managing it, but like, you know, the exact version it is, you have an exact connection query string to your specific instance somewhere that you can actually hit it. You have like a slice of a server somewhere that's that's managed for you. And if you want to upgrade minor versions, major versions, you know when that happens. Whereas with DynamoDB, like you don't have a specific server instance somewhere, right? DynamoDB is this multi-tenant region-wide service where everyone in US East One is basically running on the same infrastructure, whether that's like my tiny app, whether that's Lyft's rideshare, whether that's amazon.com retail, right? It's like the same, just giant shared infrastructure. And there's like different services involved in there and, and, and managing all this stuff. But like, you don't think about upgrades, right? Cause you're not upgrading those. They're like changing those systems all the time as, as those teams are working to either add features or add reliability or availability or whatever that is. But you truly don't think about upgrades. And I think you'll see more of that as we go of just like, Hey, this is, this is a managed service now. And then like, if you want to make comparisons outside of OLTP, you could say like in search, right? Like previously there was Elasticsearch and there are managed Elasticsearch options. But again, 
you have a specific server, you have to upgrade that and, and deal with it. Whereas if you look at something like Algolia, totally fully managed hosted service for you, it, you get an API and, and they're going to be doing those upgrades and improvements behind the scenes. And you don't have to think about that stuff. So I think we'll see more and more movement to that, that like fully managed stuff where, where, Hey, that, that team is managing that for you and managing those upgrades. And you don't really think about that. Yeah. Dude. So this is fascinating because it, there's a few things that come to my mind. One is when it comes to managed services, I think about the MLOP space and I wonder a lot about if managed services are going to happen at the MLOps level or if it's going to be at a different level and specifically because of like the security and the data governance and everything that comes with like messiness around data. But then I look at data engineering and I look at exactly what you were saying and how it might just be that MLOps is not that mature yet. And so once we get more mature, we will start to see more of these managed services. And then the other piece that came to mind right away was the idea of, all right, cool. It feels like we've found the right abstraction layer and we're just going to manage it now. It's not like we're going to take another abstraction layer and put it on top and then put it on top. It's like, no, this is good. We'll just like, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I don't know enough about the MLOps space, but my guess would be it's, it's probably a little behind the databases space and on some of that managed stuff. Because like, if you look back, there's database research going back 40, 50 years on on relational databases, on concurrency, on transaction management. And they're like, they're like core patterns that, that most of them follow. And like the advent of the cloud has changed some of that or faster processes or SSDs have changed some of that. But the core concepts are like pretty well studied and, and handled. Whereas like, ML still seems like a newer space to me, and especially like productionizing ML at, at like a, a, a scale that you can get with the internet. There, there's there's Google and Facebook and, and Amazon doing these sorts of things, but in terms of like really shaking out those patterns, getting the research and, and things like that, that would be my guess, but I don't have Same. like enough confidence to know, but also just like seeing some of the managed services from the cloud providers, things I hear people use, it sounds to me, hey, not quite there yet in terms of like really being easy to use and and able to do some of that stuff yeah and so let's jump into dynamo a bit because i cannot have you all on here you've written yeah. a whole book about dynamo <laughs> and like let's talk about it man i really yeah. wanted to think about a just what exactly drew you to dynamo and you mentioned it before that you you got into it you started using it in a serverless but why like write a whole book on it and then what <laughs> what is the allure of dynamo yeah. right like yeah is it just because you had so much hours put into it <laughs> that you wanted to be like i gotta share this with somebody yeah yeah I, i've gone down this path i better make make others do it as well no i think the <laughs> thing for me is like i was so i was working for serverless inc we we're working on the serverless framework and doing these sorts of things and the way Lambda compute, AWS Lambda, right? It's that event-driven compute where it's always like basically spinning up an in a container instance when you have an event ready and willing to go, which means like initialization needs to be quick. It also need like it really prefers sort of, I would say HTTP-based services, right? You'll be reaching out to HTTP-based services because like when your Lambda function spins up, you don't know its IP address. You can't whitelist it its IP address very easily to go access your your private database or things like that. So you want things that are HTTP access and maybe re rely on different th mechanisms for authentication, authorization. So that's like the underlying thing. And, and, the, and the real practical thing is like, 
it was hard to use a relational database with Lambda for the first couple of years of Lambda because you had to put your Lambda in a VPC. This added like this immense cold start time of like 10 to 15 seconds, which like if you're making HTTP requests and you have 10 to 15 seconds of hanging before you can even get to the database land. Like, That's not good. It, yeah, it's, it's not good. So like people are like, okay, what can I do instead of, of that? And they're like, oh, Dynamo is like super easy. The billing model fits Lambda, the the sort of scaling model, all sorts of things. It feels like using any other AWS service. So a lot of people start using DynamoDB because of that. And it's weird because they've now like fixed that VPC cold start issue, but still Dynamo is, I think, the, the, the database of choice for a lot of serverless developers, not everyone. So I've got into Dynamo. Dynamo is very different. It, it's a NoSQL database, so it's more like Mongo or Cassandra. Folks have worked with those, but very different than relational databases. But I think what happens with NoSQL is like people learn normalization. They learn how relational databases work, and they try to bring that exact same model to NoSQL. And it's just not going not gonna to work very well. And... Dynamo is stricter than most about making sure you're doing the NoSQL model rather than doing the relational model. Whereas like Mongo will let you get away with some of the relational flexibility type stuff. Dynamo is not going to, right? And so why do you like that? Why does that matter? Yeah, like that kind of stinks up front. And that's why a lot of people don't like Dynamo. But the nice, the benefit you get about Dynamo is predictability. Predictability of of latency, response time, but basically predictability of performance, no matter your scale, right? So if you're developing locally and you're working with DynamoDB and you have kilobytes or megabytes of data, you're gonna get basically the same response and performance profile that you'll get 10 years later when you have terabytes and terabytes and terabytes or petabytes of data in there. You're gonna get the exact same performance profile rather than like if you have a relational database or maybe Mongo or something like that and you're doing these huge joins across multiple tables or you're doing aggregations and now you have instead of a gig of data you have many many gigs of data like that performance profile totally changes um and it's it's unpredictable in a lot of ways and a lot of people just get bit by relational databases as they they scale up because it's hard to know like which features you can rely on which ones are going to be the same performance profile and which ones aren't and you really need some expertise there whereas dynamo is just like basically it's going to work the same and it teaches you like, hey, these things don't scale, these things do. And if you want to do these sorts of things, here's how you model for that instead and plan about that. And so you like think about performance and scalability and those sorts of concerns early. And then it's just like set it and forget it, right? You, it goes into prod and you're like, you're not going to get that performance degradation over time. So one of the questions, because I've not really used Dynamo, is what sure. kind of data to use in Dynamo? And one of the reasons I ask you this question is because I know there's a size limit on every single item, which is yep. much smaller than what you get, let's say, MongoDB or Cassandra or OpenSGRS. Yep. yep, sure. So, like, Dynamo's size limit is 400 kilobytes for a single item, which is, like, still a pretty big item, right? Like, plenty big enough for that. They will prevent you from, I, I would say, like, especially in, like, Mongo, sometimes you get, like, it, if you have... If you're building like a document that has a lot of relations and you might nest a bunch of stuff in there and you can get really big documents. I've seen people do that before, whereas Dynamo is going to cut you off from that stuff. Or like in Postgres, sometimes you put like some blobby type data, whether binary data, image data, and they're like, hey, no, you should probably put that in S3 and have a pointer to that instead rather than embedding it in your database. But what Dynamo is for is basically OLTP applications, right? So if you split your world into OLTP and OLAP, OLAP like OLAP is your analytics stuff, right? When when someone internally says like, what was our total sales last week or total sales by region or like the things that you use Snowflake and Redshift and different things for. That's OLAP. 
OLTP is like your user facing super fast, lots of concurrent, but super fast operations, right? So when you go into Twitter and you're typing in a tweet, they're saving in a database, that's OLTP, right? If someone likes that tweet or retweets that tweet or sends you a message, all that is OLTP. So the things that are happening very quickly, but on like smaller records, an individual message, a tweet, rather than aggregations, all of our sales that happened last week, right? So Dynamo is strongly, strongly, strongly focused on OLTP. It's not good at OAP at all. You shouldn't use it for OAP, but strongly, it's really good for, for OLTP-like applications because it gives you that predictable performance. If you have millions and millions of users, you're still going to get that that same performance profile. So, for example, like let's say we're building an online ads marketplace. Would DynamoDB be good for that one? Yeah, actually, absolutely. I believe like I, I'm not exactly positive. I think like AdRoll, and I think a lot of I'm sure a lot of online ads marketplace use that because usually that's going to be a key value type lookup, right? Give me this particular thing. Like like Dynamo is really good at getting individual records by a key or getting a set of records by a, a sort of known key, right? So. Like if you go to amazon.com and you want to look up all the orders for me as a customer, it can get the set of records, all my orders for this particular user, Alex, right? They can do that that super efficiently and, and no matter how much data you have in your application, it's going to be good at that sort of thing. So I have heard a lot of comparisons and like people talking about trade-offs between Dynamo and Redis. Can you break down how you view the two of those and when you would go with one or the other? Yeah, so I was let's start with Redis. I think that one's like a little narrower. Redis is super fast, right? It's gonna be an in-memory database, often used for caching type workflows or or data that is okay to be lost can be ephemeral in some way. So caching, maybe like a session store for your application, maybe a feature store if you're working in, in ML type stuff. But if you want to do lots of very fast operations. Redis is going to do that. It's not going to persist to disk. Generally, there are some like options to persist to disk and, and things like that, but generally it's not going to be considered a a persistent database like like MySQL, Postgres, or, or DynamoDB, where Dynamo is going to actually persist that to disk between, right, and guarantee the durability of your data in certain ways. So I'd say that that's going to be the biggest difference. You'll get better top-end performance out of Redis. You're going to get good enough performance usually out of out of DynamoDB, but also guarantees around durability, availability, and, and just predictability of performance would be the, the big thing there. Sure. There are managed Redis solutions, but again, those are going to fall into what I call the instance space world, where it's like, they're they're cutting off a, a slice of a server somewhere, installing Redis on it, and giving you connection to that. And rather than being like that multi-tenant region-wide service that DynamoDB is, and because of that scalability with Redis is is going to be a little harder. It's harder. You usually have to like add a new node and shard across that. Maybe size up your node, but now is is all your existing data gone and and things like that. So just like scalability is more of a sort of instance-based process rather than just sort of like a knob you can turn with Dynamo. And seeing how there is a lot of databases out there, and we were just talking about many of them, but I go through yeah. my head and I think about so many that I've heard in the last yeah. month or two, just in the ML space, right? When you're looking at databases and when you're thinking about which ones to use, what are some things that you have in mind? And you're like, I loved what you said earlier when, you mentioned how you prefer to have your database be opinionated. So yeah. that I guess that's one thing that you're looking at, but it's also, you're not really checking out features. You're more thinking about other things. What are these things that you have in mind? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it depends a lot on the use case, but definitely like I like databases that have an opinion and be like, hey, we're good at this, right? Dynamo, basically from the top and from their product people and their engineers, they're like, we are, we are focused on predictable performance. And that means we'll give you certain things and we won't give you certain things. And even their API is much more restricted compared to other NoSQL databases like Mongo. MongoDB and DynamoDB, both NoSQL databases, both are sharding their data under the hood across multiple different machines. But I always say like Mongo or Dynamo is authoritarian, Mongo is libertarian. Like Dynamo won't let you do some things and, and it thinks it's for your own good and like won't let you do that. Mongo is like, hey, do it all, like whatever you want to do and like expecting you to be responsible with it. And if you, if you model it right, then you can get some of that predictable performance type stuff that you might get with Dynamo because it's the same under the hood. But you can also sort of, you can hurt yourself by, if you, if you do model it wrong, like you have enough rope to hang yourself there. So again, that's Dynamo, like Dynamo's thing is like predictability of performance above all and availability and durability with that. Redis is, is opinionated as well. I think a lot of people want more like persistence and stuff around Redis and you've seen some of that added, but Redis is like, Hey, we are cash. We're super fast. We're single threaded data store that, that, that does in-memory operations and gives you certain guarantees around that. And if your data is bigger than this, then, hey, you can you can manage sharding across multiple machines or different things like that. But it has those sorts of opinions about like what guarantees and what performance you want from your data. I think the big thing is for whatever use case you're doing, understand what your needs are and, and understand them like pretty specifically. Usually there's like one or two core things you need. And some people think, well, I need fast access on my data, but I also want to be able to run analytics and do full text search. And it's like, well, you can get all that in one database, but you're probably not going to be happy with the results. Like, what is the the thing that matters for you here? And then if you need to pull in a different data source to handle some of those other things, I'd recommend looking at that rather than, than, than trying to make one do it all. On the same note, you have a very interesting blog post, cap or no cap. Let's demystify. And let's prove a lot of people wrong on that one. Okay, yeah. So what so, is CAP? <laughs> yeah, so CAP is helpful, but probably overstated distributed systems database type thing. And it, it's, it's basically saying in a distributed system that's holding data and replicating data across multiple different systems, you need to think that you get two out of three properties, right? You get partition tolerance, which means there can be like broken communication, network communication between your nodes, which like if you're distributing your data, you basically have to take that as a, as a given that sometimes the network communication between your node will be disrupted. And then it says in the event of that, do you prefer consistency or do you prefer availability? And consistency means all the data or all the nodes are showing the same data, returning the same data for a given piece of data. Because remember, we're replicating it across multiple things, right? So if I log into a system, my username, and I set my username to whatever particular value, um, and now you have a network partition, right? And I want to go change that that username value. You could either allow me to make that change knowing that some of those nodes won't get that communication. Thus, we it can serve like inconsistent data across different people who are querying that. That would be choosing availability because you're saying, hey, accept the right no matter what. Be available to accept that right no matter what, or ideally above all. The other one would be saying, hey, if there's a network partition, no, we want to have consistent data across that. So if we can't replicate it to all those, then we, we won't accept the right, right? Because we want to have a consistent answer across that. That's a poorly explained version of the CAP theorem. It's been around <laughs> for a while. And it gets brought up a lot in because we're seeing more distributed databases, especially with the advent of the cloud world. And we're like, and people are, are worried about that. I would say I, I wrote up some stuff around data consistency because there's also this notion of eventual consistency, which is related to this, but not exactly. 
Uh, but then people pull out like the cap theorem all the time. And, and what cap or no cap is, is, is trying to explain like, does the cap theorem strictly apply to this particular situation? And, and if so, like, what are they choosing? Are they choosing availability? Are they choosing consistency in that, in that scenario? What the, what the things are? That was kind of a fun one I wrote. Th thanks for bringing that one up. Here I was thinking that you were some hip Gen Z saying I cap, no like, cap. Okay. So I, I, I think I even said in that blog post, my, so I'm like 30, 34. My wife has some brothers that are like 12 years younger. So they're like in college right now. So, so <laughs> I, I, I know some of the fun terminology from that, like, like no cap. Like I'd never heard any of my age friends say that, but I've heard them say that. And I, yes. I kind of know what it means based on that. So yeah. Yes. And for the others that are our age, apparently I've found out that no cap means no lie. So no, I'm not lying. It's the truth. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's no lies. <laughs> so dude, before we jump, I want to ask you a few questions about the book. And like, okay. first of all, this might be a little meta, but I think you can get it on Amazon, right? You can buy the book on you Amazon. Can't. Okay. So I used to not have that, man, this is the first place I've even like announced it now <laughs> because so I had mostly just, it, it's basically an ebook type version and you can get it. I have a site for it that it, it directs you to Gumroad and you can just sit there. People have been asking for like a paper copy for a long time. And I was yeah. like looking at copies and it's like, oh no, it's like 30 bucks to print if you're doing like small orders of stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to charge that. Like it would just eat a lot of margin and stuff. So, but then someone told me about Kindle Direct, Direct Publishing, which is basically amazon.com. You can upload on there. I'm not actually selling a Kindle book through there, even though it's called Kindle Direct, but they will print your books on demand for you. So I've like, I just uploaded my file, created the book and all that stuff. And now you can, you can buy it on Amazon if you want to. So yes. it's available there for like a, yeah. So I, I like bought like 30 author copies. I have, I have some behind me. A sign, you have some signed copies that we can give to. They're like unsigned, but I can't, look at that. This one is clearly unsigned. That is awesome. I, yeah. One thing I didn't realize is like the font is way bigger than I, than I realized. <laughs> right. It looks like an old person's book, kind of, but <laughs> you do not uh, but need yeah, glasses you can, you can to get wear this. On. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's classic. So yeah. that that should be like the catchphrase of the book. You <laughs> can read it without glasses. And... <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know. I'm kind of worried for like the first person to buy it and like review it and be like, why is this fall so huge? Like, what's going on? One star. Because you had a page. Yeah. You had a page minimum you had to hit before yeah, the yeah. <laughs> so I, I kind of like big font on my computer, like when I'm reading stuff. And so I think I just like, when I generated the PDF file, it made it, it made a big, and I didn't realize that it was like weirdly no big way. until it's on a book and just, yeah. Even though Dynamo DB's item size of small notebooks, item <laughs> size is very <laughs> <much. laughs> yeah, irony. Yeah, thank you. Dude, well, yeah. and, and what can we expect? I mean, Dude. what is in the book? Yeah, it's just I think understanding how how Dynamo works, how NoSQL works. I think it's it's very different from like the normalized world that you're you're used to, and you don't need to throw all that out. But you you learn to see like, hey, when can I relax some of the by principles around normalization? Also, how do I design specifically for my access patterns, which I think is different from people coming from a relational world. In a relational world, you think about your objects, you normalize those, create tables, and do all that stuff, and then you think. How am I going to access those objects? That's when you add your queries and maybe some indexes, things like that. Whereas Dynamo, it really specifically wants you to model for your access patterns. So you think first, like if I have a user, how am I going to retrieve that user? By username, by email address, what is that? And use that as my primary key and things like that. So it teaches you those principles. It teaches you the Dynamo API. And, and ideally, like, ideally the, the reason it is the way it is, right? I want to push like, 
hey, predictability of performance is what we're getting here. Here's the underlying architecture of what's happening in Dynamo. Because of that, here's the API they give you. And because of that, here's how you have to model your data. And then you get all those really good benefits. You just have to learn how to model it a little differently than before. So some of that stuff, a lot of like strategy stuff, I call it strategy. So it's like, hey, if you have one-to-many relationships, very common thing, how do you model that? And here are five different ways, depending on sort of your unique needs on how you can do that. Same thing with many, many relationships, filtering, sorting, things like that. And then it has a bunch of just like deep walkthrough examples. Like we re we, we rebuild a bunch of GitHub for that or, or like a oh, deal nice. site and things like that just to, to show what that looks like. Wow, that's awesome. If you were to make some changes onto the book, let's say you decided once again, I'm going to put equal amount of effort and, you know, forget sleep. What would be the chapters you would be adding on or what would be the chapters you would be expanding on? I think like, so one thing in Dynamo is, is this concept called single table design, where you put a lot of different entities into a single DynamoDB table rather than separate tables like you would in, in a relational database. And I think that's like one of the big mindset shifts are just like, wow, this is so different. I think that can be useful. I think it can be useful for like teaching people how it works particularly. But like, I, I think the book maybe goes too far in the direction of like, you have to do it this way. I think understanding more of the principles of like modeling for your access patterns, things like that. But if you don't have like these sort of two or three unique needs, it's fine to to have multiple tables and, and, and things like that and make it work that way. So discussing, I think some of the trade-offs and nuance around that, I, I would definitely do a lot do a lot more on that. Yeah, that would be the big, but man, I, I, you're giving me nightmares just even think about like revisiting and, and spending <laughs> that much time on the book. I, it was, yeah, I, I really loved doing it. Like when I was in it, I was like deep down into it, but then like near the end, I was like, I just got to get this out and never touch it again. And it's hard, like, I want to do a revision, but it is really hard to like look at it and, and think, do I want to redo this whole thing? How does it all tie together? Things like that. Well, then let's just imagine that you didn't do a revision and you decided to write another book. What would the next book be? Oh man, I've, I've, so I've, I've pondered for a long time of doing like a, a general serverless book or course, things like that. So three ideas th that keep coming back to me. One would be like a general sort of serverless ideas and course and things like that. Focus on AWS Lambda and serverless architectures. The second one would be one called Amazon Cognito, which is basically, it's a user authentication service from Amazon, from AWS. And it gets a lot of nice. guff. People don't love it. But I, I think that's how Dynamo was before some people at AWS and, and myself, we started like evangelizing how Dynamo actually works. And I, I wonder if Cognito is mostly an education problem rather than a product problem and could use like a, a book that way. And then I would like, honestly, I kind of want to do one called like databases for developers or something like that. I, I submitted a talk somewhere to do this where I just want to talk about like thinking about these different databases and like, uh, again, like what are, we hear about SQL, NoSQL, caching, we hear about indexing with, with Elasticsearch, warehouses, how do those differ? How, like if I'm like a full stack developer and I don't have time to learn all the nitty gritty intricacies of this, like uh -huh. what are the key principles you should learn for each one to, to learn some of that stuff? Like all the stuff yes. that I learned slowly and painfully over the last eight years and like in a bad way in the last eight years, like especially not having a, a computer science background, right? I went to law school. like the book that I wish I had then to, to do that. So yeah, those would be the that three. sounds so good. About. Yeah. So I got to ask the hypey question, especially like Let's do it. you, you being so deep in the database world and you inevitably have probably seen like the rest of us, how much chat GPT has taken over the internet in the last month or two. And so you, aside from like the obvious 
answer, which would be, okay, just getting ChatGPT to help me write database queries. What are some things that as you're looking at databases, you think potentially AI or maybe a, a few iterations down the line, a chat GPT could help you with in this, this world that you play it? That's interesting. Like one that's, that's interesting. And I hear people talk about a lot is just sort of like smarter indexing and things like that. I think a lot with like relational databases, you have to set up these indexes. And a lot of times people create more indexes than they need and don't know which ones are, are getting used or create a, an index that isn't particularly effective. I think just understanding like where you need those sort of indexing and, and helping with, if you can understand your access patterns or even understand the queries that are actually going against your database and smartly adapt to that. I've he heard people talk about that. That seems far off for me. I always think there's like a trade-off between like abstraction, like the more abstract something is, maybe it's like easier to handle and you don't have to know it as much, but you also, I think, lose some performance or specificity sure. around that sort of those things. And like, I think with Dynamo, you, you have to be more specific and you have to learn how these things work, but then you get those sort of performance benefits. Whereas like if you're abstracting it more into like a normalized model with relational databases and using a query planner, you lose some of that. But maybe it gets to a point where the query planner and the index planner and all that stuff is smart enough where we don't need to craft our our data models anymore and it can help us a lot with that. So that'd be that'd be the thing I'd be looking out for. Um, same with like data warehouses too, right? Like understanding what you're going to aggregate, understanding how you're going to be filtering stuff to align data on disk in, in helpful ways. Just reducing like the cost of data modeling because man, a lot of developers just do not want to learn data modeling. And I don't know why, but like, I think it's so fascinating all the data stuff, but then like a lot of people are just like, I just want to get what it is and, and get onto other stuff and, and, and don't understand like the principles there. Alex, dude, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so it, it, much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This has been, this has been really fun. Great to meet you both. And, and thanks for having me on. This is Skylar. I lead machine learning at Health Rhythms. If you want to stay on top of everything happening in MLOps, subscribe to this podcast now. 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 Now.